starts, just like a beautiful china plate dropped on a concrete floor. And at the same time that that relationship was shattered in that way, the self-focus that was inside of Eve and that is now inside of Adam began to grow and twist and expand and to pervert. And it perverted in a very fast and curious, weird way. But God, in his wisdom and his love, immediately banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden before they could partake of the tree of life. Because if they had partaken of the tree of life, then they would have lived forever in that fallen, twisted, perverted state of self-focus. That self-focus then began to spread throughout every bloodline of human history. Every single person from the time of Adam and Eve until the time of now, me and you, has got our DNA, our genetic makeup has been twisted by that perversion of what was originally probably a good self-focus. The only man that has ever not had that twisting of their DNA has been Jesus Christ. And so after, an Adam, after Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden, that self-focus continues to metastasize and grow and you see its next horrible darkness, the sinisterness of it all in the life of Cain. So Cain's just a regular farmer. And one day when it's time to offer God some offering, Cain brings some of the fruit of the ground to God and offers it to him to God. Well, the Bible never talks about that particular fruit being anything special. There's nothing first about it and there's nothing best about it. Cain just brings what he's got and he probably comes with not the greatest attitude and God rejects the offering of Cain. However, he accepts the offering of Abel. He accepts the offering of Abel because Abel brings, the Bible says, his first and his best, which is a reflection of his attitude. So God accepts Abel and rejects Cain and this enrages Cain. Cain becomes terribly angry and in a fit of murderous pride, he kills his brother. And that's the foundational, that's one of the foundational elements, one of the foundational building blocks of Christian thought is that human beings are riddled with pride. That our self-focus, which would normally be good, like if you got a thorn in your finger, you would want to self-focus and remove that, right? Well, it's become, or when you see something good in your life happen, you want to celebrate it. Well, that goodness has been twisted into something totally, totally evil. And so that's a foundational element of Christian thought is that pride, which is the chief of all sins, is something that goes through every human being, every thought, every behavior. It's part of your life every day. Another foundational building block in those stories is that things that are generally good, when they are outside of the will of God, they break and twist and become something worse. So that everything that you have in your life that has been good and gifted to you by God is something that should be kept in line with whatever God has for your life. Because once you get it outside those bounds, it becomes something that's evil. That's two foundational building blocks. So I'm going to, I'm going to, blow your mind a little bit this morning because I'm gonna move away from that building block analogy and I'm gonna to go to a different analogy. I'm going to analogy of worldview, what academics called worldview. Worldview is a lens that you look through. 
And I'm gonna help you build a proper lens this morning. When you've got enough of those foundational building blocks in place and you understand enough about those stories of the Bible, you can then begin to fashion a lens that you can look through and interpret the facts of the world and read your Bible and understand it better and know how to make better decisions about the world. So I'm gonna help you begin building a worldview this morning. Now, as I build this worldview for you, I want you to understand that I'm gonna introduce some things to you that if you've been in church for a long time, these might sound controversial. You might even be shocked a little bit about some of the things that I say this morning. And if that's the case, I want you to come to me after the sermon. I'm willing to talk to anybody about it. And you'll realize after you've talked to me for a bit that whatever I'm gonna shock you with this morning, that shock is just a reaction. It's not really something you've thought through. Those of you who have not been in church for a long time, this probably won't, this will seem amazing to you, but you know, but probably won't shock you. Now that I've got Damon nice and scared, we'll move on. Say again? Okay. So a worldview lens is very important. If you take a lens, a red lens, and you put that red lens up to your face, everything that you see is going to be red. If you take a special lens, like maybe a camera, a video camera that only sees in black and white, and you look through the lens of that video camera, everything's going to be dull and monochrome. But what I want you to have is a clear lens, like my glasses. If I take off my glasses and I try to read my notes this morning, I, I, you know, I can pull it back this far and I, I still can't even see it. But if I put on my glasses, it's totally, perfectly crystal clear. And I can read my notes well and tell you what you need to hear. So here's the worldview that I'm going to give you this morning. Sometimes in academic and theological circles, this worldview is called the divine counsel worldview. Sometimes it's called the Deuteronomy 38, um, 8 through 9 worldview. That doesn't, none of that matters. The real worldview is that God acts in concert with other spiritual beings who are sometimes called by the Hebrews gods. So there are multiple gods in a kind of pantheon in the, Hebrew, in the ancient Hebrew mind, but there was only one God that was worthy of worship. And that was the God that we sometimes call Jehovah or Jehovah Jireh or Adonai or all these other names that you've heard throughout your Christian history. So God is at the top of that hierarchy. He is unique. There is no other God like him. He is the only one that is like that. And there are a bunch of created by him, gods or spiritual beings might be a better word that operate beneath him. And he works in a council and that council makes decisions. So that's the basic worldview. And I'm gonna give you the facts to this. I'm gonna gonna teach you some things from the Bible, some Bible stories that are gonna be fascinating to you. First, we're gonna start with the fall. Then we're gonna move to something that I call the invasion. And then we're gonna move to something that I call the division. And these three things, these three events will help you to see some of the stories in the Bible a little bit differently and will help you to understand them in a clear way and will give you a view of the world that is supernatural. We're gonna begin in Genesis chapter three. Again, you're gonna get another dose of Genesis chapter three. And I'm just gonna read it. I'm gonna read Genesis chapter three again. And then I'm going to go back and look at some key places in it. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
we may, meet, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for, fruit, uh, good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. By the way, that's the self-awareness, right? That's the self-focus. All of a sudden they're aware that they're naked. It had never been a problem before, but now their self-focus is twisted. It's a, why, why is being naked bad? You were created naked. You're put in the Garden of Eden naked. Why is this a bad thing? There's all kinds of self-focused disruption going on. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, uh, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken and uh, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the God, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the story of the fall, partially. Now let's back up to verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This was not an ordinary serpent. How do we know? Well, First, should be clear to you if you're an English-speaking person, because the translation says that he was the most crafty of the field, and then in the next verse it says he spoke to the woman. Well, lizards don't talk. They just don't. I've never seen one that talks, okay? And they're not that crafty. They're not the brightest animals on the plain or in the river. 
So this is not your ordinary serpent. If you had been a Hebrew reader, if you had been an ancient Hebrew person, you would have known immediately that this was not an ordinary serpent. Because the name for this serpent that they use, the word serpent in the English Bible, is translated from a word, nakash. And nakash is made up of three Hebrew roots. When it's used as a noun, nakash means serpent or serpentine. When it's used as a verb, it means to divine or to whisper or to deceive. When it's used as an adjective, it means to shine like bronze or brass. So this was a deliberate construction of words for us to see that this thing is no ordinary serpent. It's a serpent that lies, can practice divination. It shines like maybe a divine being. And it's intelligent, a nakash, a serpent. The word serpent, by the way, is also a word that you find in other areas of heaven. Have you ever heard of cherubim and seraphim? You guys ever heard of those? Okay. Cherubim and seraphim are what we call angels, kinds of angels, a type of angel. Okay. That's the English understanding of those words. Seraphim comes from a root word that means, what do you think? Huh? Well, not Satan, but serpentine. Okay. So this is a divine being. This is not just some lizard out in the field. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was um, a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This being knew that when they ate of that fruit, that there would be consequences. He had some kind of foreknowledge or some kind of technical knowledge that was able to say, when you eat of this, this isn't going to happen to you. But he knows, obviously, because he's lying, she deceived him, that something would happen. This is somebody that knew something. Now let's go down to the curses. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, uh, above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is one of those places in the Bible where it is, it's factually true, but also metaphorically true. Okay, snakes crawl on the ground, but they don't eat dirt. Snakes don't eat dirt. They eat other things, right? So again, this is metaphorical language. You're going to go to the ground as low as you can go and you're going to live in the dust and you're going to eat dust. That's what's going to happen to you, Mr. Serpent. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, 
conflict between you and your between uh, you and the woman and between your offspring and the offspring and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel to the woman he said i will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be contrary to your husband which also means that your husband's desire will be contrary to you. So there's now going to be conflict in your family because your self-focus has now, is now going to, it's now going to morph and change into pride. It's going to change into an unholy pride in which both of you are trying to lift yourself over the other in the hierarchy. That's going to be conflictive. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust. And to dust you shall return. Now, human beings are not just dust because we're hybrids. We are spirit beings and we are flesh beings. And when we die, it's our flesh that turns to dust. And in the fall of Adam and Eve, it is our flesh, also in some respects our spirit, but mostly our flesh that becomes corrupted. And that's what returns to dust. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. This is a reflection of of the same sort of grammar and language that is used in Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 26, where it says this. Then the Lord God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. There's clearly in these verses a plurality. Let's make, let us make him in our image. And then in the very next verse, God makes them in his image. There's this switch back and forth. Now I could spend a couple of sermons or a couple of Bible study classes on the actual Hebrew language that's being used there. It is absolutely fascinating and it will blow your mind. But the thing that I want you to, that I want to get across to you here is that there's a plurality of powers that are involved in the decision-making process here. God makes the decision but there's a plurality of people that are involved, or a plurality of powers that are involved in that process. So that's a very important verse, by the way, verse one. Man is made in the image of God. That means partly that we look like God. And we know that from Jesus. 
Jesus looks like us, we look like Jesus. Jesus is a man, I'm a man. But the real message in that, the deeper message in that, is that when God made us in his image, he made us to have dominion over the earth, just like God has dominion over the universe. We are his image bearers on earth, meaning that we have the authority that he has given us to rule the planet. And of course, when we fell in Eden, that was completely disrupted. Now that's the first fall story. Fall story number one that we're talking about this morning is the fall of man at the Garden of Eden. Second fall story I want to talk about is the fall of Satan. You will find the fall of Satan, which very much parallels the fall of man in some ways, in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28. Now both of these passages are comparing human kings to Satan and his fall. In Isaiah 14, the comparison is between um, the king of Babylon and the fall of Satan. And in Ezekiel, the comparison is between the king of Tyre and the fall of Satan. And that's just a little bit of fact that I want you to know, just so that you know these, these verses, when you go and read them, you'll see the switch back and forth between, between beings. I want you to understand that they're talking about both these kings because the writer is making a comparison between the kings and Satan. Isaiah 14, 12 through 16 says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Satan says that I am going, he says to himself, I am going to lift myself above the most high God. I am going to sit in his throne and I am going to be like the most high God. All right, if you have a most high God, what does that mean? That there are other powers beneath him, correct? But he's the most Satan is saying, I'm going to lift myself above all of the other spiritual beings, and I'm going to lift myself above even the most high God. And God says, oh, you're not. No, you're not. You're going down to the ground, Satan. You're going down to earth. I am casting you down where you are going to be on the earth, and you are going to be in the dust, and you're going to crawl on your belly. That's where you're going. Ezekiel 28 says it like this. You were in Eden the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. 
You corrupted your wisdom from the sake of your, for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought you fire out of the midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful you have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Satan has the same sin problem and self-focus problem that Eve did. He appeals to that. He stirs in her the potential for pride and she takes that bait and she has the same fall somewhat that he does. And so does Adam. So how can we know that this might be Satan, the actual Satan, who is the serpent, besides just from my pastors and Sunday school teachers telling me that. Well, Jesus cites those two passages. He does it in Luke 10, verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons, he had sent out 72 people to do his work, Jesus did, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus says, I saw Satan cast from heaven like lightning to the ground. I saw it. I was there. And he said, don't be surprised that you have the ability to tread on serpents and scorpions and that the spirits obey your commands. These are spiritual beings that are all around us all the time. And Jesus says to those 72, you have the power to order them around. Now, We're going to move. That was the fall. You got it? That's the fall of man. That's the fall of Satan. There is a supernatural event that occurs in heaven. There's a supernatural event that occurs on earth. There are beings that are around us, beings that move with us on the earth. I'm going to take you to the invasion. We have the fall. We have the invasion. Now we're going to the invasion. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, giants, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
That's the invasion story. Now, how is that an invasion story? Well, let's look at it. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The sons of God is a title for spiritual beings. Everywhere else in the Bible where you see the phrase sons of God, it is a reference to spiritual beings. It's a reference to angels and to spiritual beings. So the same group of people that Satan belonged to that came down and deceived Eve, those came down to the daughters of men, saw that they were beautiful, took them and had children by them. And those children were the giants of old called the Nephilim, which means to fall. These are fallen beings, and they produced Nephilim. These Nephilim were the mighty men of old. There was something about them that was stronger, bigger, better. This was an invasion of spiritual beings into the bloodlines of humanity. If you go to Job, Job 1, verses 6 through 12, write this down, you can go home and read it. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch your hand out and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hands only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan approaches the court of God right, with a group of people called the sons of God. Let me read that to you again. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and, before, and Satan came also with them. It's a court that God is holding and the sons of God who are angels and spiritual beings come there with Satan. And Satan says, look, there's this guy named Job he only loves you because you protect him and because you give him stuff. If you'll let me have him, um, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, no, he won't. You can do whatever you want to with him, but don't take his life. Go ahead. And of course, the great story of Job is that Job does go through an enormous amount of suffering that most of us couldn't even imagine. And he never curses God because he belonged to God. He was, a child, he was an actual child of God. So... That's a Sons of God reference. That's a main Sons of God reference. There's another Sons of God reference in Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 36. There came to him, came to Jesus, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. 
And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses, uh, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first, the first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. That's an interesting phrase. This should bring meaning to you whenever you realize that you are saved and become a child of God. You are now something that is divine. You are equal, in some respect, to the angels. Okay? This is why, before you're saved, you are not a child of God. You do not belong to his family. You're a creature of God. You are something that God has made, but you are not a son or daughter of God until after you're saved. Once you become saved, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit and you become part of the family of God. You are a son or daughter of God. So sons of God is a reference to spiritual beings. These are things that are spiritual, and they invaded humanity in Genesis chapter 6. Now, why would they do that, Mike? Well, I don't know. Why do you think... This is me speculating. Can I speculate for a moment? Okay. All right, so why, why, in the world, why in the world would Satan do what he did in the Garden of Eden? This is just me speculating. I might get to heaven and God's going to go, you're totally wrong about that. But Satan's been cast from heaven. He thinks he's the most beautiful thing in the universe. He's going to ascend above the most high God. And God says, no, you're not. I'm kicking you out of here. And by the way, I'm making a whole new race. We're going to call them people. And they're going to have dominion over the earth. And they're going to be my image bearers on the earth. They're going to be my image bearers on earth. You're not. They are. What kind of pride might arise out of that? If you had once been the most beautiful spiritual being in heaven, short of God. You might not like that. I'm going to mess all this up for you, God. Let me go down there and see if I can get Adam and Eve killed. I know if they eat of that fruit, they're going to die. Hmm, what can I do by Genesis 6? They're already getting bad from what I started in the Garden of Eden. What can I do in Genesis 6 to make it worse? Maybe if I go down there and pollute the bloodline, then God can't do anything to redeem it. That's just me speculating, maybe. But we know from Genesis 6 that when they did that, things got worse. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they, were, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. But Noah 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So these beings come in, they invade humanity, and then man was already bad, but now they're really bad. The thoughts of their heart and mind are only evil continually, all the time. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw, that the, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But then, of course, we know the story of Noah. And God tells Noah to build an ark. You're righteous. You're good. I'm going to try to save you and all the animals. Build an ark. God rescues humanity with the ark. I'm going to give you one more thing to think about in that invasion story. There's a curious passage in the book of Jude, Jude 5 through 7, Jude only has one chapter, verses 5 through 7 in Jude, you'll read this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay Within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. There were angels that committed some kind of sexual sin that was similar to what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jude says that they're being held in chains of gloomy darkness because they left their position of authority and went against God's will. Who do you think those are? Those are the guys in Genesis 6 who saw the daughters of Eve and that they were beautiful. Are y'all tracking? I'm not going too fast, am I? Has anybody's mind gone yet? Okay. Huh? All right. That's the invasion story. Where am I on time? That's the invasion story. Now we're going to go to the division story. So we've had a fall of man. We have a fall of Satan. We have these demonic powers try to Influence, uh, try to invade humanity through the bloodlines of, of the daughters of men. Now we have a major division story. This is a significant story in the Bible. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
Okay. God had told man, when he kicked them out of Eden, to multiply and fill the earth. You are to go throughout all the earth and you're to fill it. Multiply and fill the earth. But by chapter 11, they're like, hmm, we don't really like that plan. Listen to what they say. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They are in direct contradiction to the order that God gave them when he kicked them from Eden. You're to fill the whole earth, disperse yourself about the earth, and then they go to the plain of Shinar and say, we're staying right here, we're going to build a city, and we're going to build a tower to the heavens. By the way, what they built at Shinar was something called a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was like a pyramid. And the purpose of ziggurats was to build them high enough so that they could meet with the gods and interface with them there. Okay? If you go out and you look at the culture of Mesopotamia and all of those Mesopotamian cultures in the area, that's what they were doing. They were building ziggurats so that they could, they could interface or commune with the gods. So the men at Shinar said, let's build us a ziggurat. Let's build us a tower so that we can make a name for ourselves. What is that? Pride, right? Let's not make a name for God. Let's make a name for ourselves. We're not going to disperse around the earth. We're going to make a name for ourselves in a prideful way. We're going to build up and we're proud. You know, I suspect, even though the Bible doesn't say this, I'm speculating that they weren't building that ziggurat to meet God. They were probably building that ziggurat to meet whatever God would come down to them and help them build their name. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. Not the children of God, but that the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there over the face of all the earth and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The Lord said, let us go down and confuse their language. And then it says, God singularly confused their language. So there's a plurality and a singular action. This, this is an example of a divine counsel. I'm going to take you to a psalm that you have probably never heard of. Psalm 82 This is Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? He's talking to those gods. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. 
all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said that you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. God shall inherit all the nations. That's what the psalmist says at the end of that psalm. He gives you a picture of a divine council in which God is judging gods who are not doing their job on earth. And then he says, arise, God, and inherit the nations. Well, why would the psalmist say something like inherit the nations? Well, the reason that he is saying to inherit the nations is because the nations were created at the Tower of Babel. They were all one language and they were all one people. God says, they're all one language. They're all one people. Let us go down there and disperse them. Otherwise, they will not, there would be nothing impossible for them if we allow them to continue in this manner. And then all hell will be on earth. So let's go disperse them. And so they're divided into different nations and different languages. Boom, right there at the Tower of Babel, all dispersed. That's where all the nations come from. In Deuteronomy 32, um, this is what you see in Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 9. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words that I say. Let my teaching fall on you like rain. Let my speech settle like dew. Let my words fall like rain on tender grass, like gentle showers on young plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, how glorious is our God. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. But they have acted corruptly toward him when they act so perversely. Are they really his children? They are deceitful and twi- they are a deceitful and twisted generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Isn't he your father who created you? Has he not made you has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of long ago. Think about the generations past. Ask your father and he will inform you. Inquire of your elders and they will tell you when the most high assigned lands to the nations. When he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of his heavenly court. For the people of Israel belong to the Lord. God, I mean, Jacob is his special possession. Jacob is a name for Israel. Now you're gonna, when you go and you read this in some translations, the ESV will say the sons of God that he, he um, divided up the nations among the number of the sons of God. You will see in the NLT, it will say the heavenly court. In the King James Version, it will say he divided them up by the number of, of Israel. But we now know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that the correct translation is the sons of God. So he divided up the nations at, ta- at the Tower of Babel among these folks that are in his, these powers that are in his heavenly court. That nation over there belongs to you. That nation over there belongs to you. I am disinheriting these nations. They have decided to build a ziggurat. They've decided to go for other gods. I'm going to scatter them about. God number one, or spiritual being number one, you get those people, you get those people, you get those people. I get Israel. Israel is mine. I am disinheriting the nations, but I am taking Israel. That's where you get Israel is God's chosen people. They're a chosen people. All right, that's the division. You follow me? 
Fall, invasion, division. We're a mess. The planet is a mess because of those three stories. That's what puts humanity in the place that it is today. The fall of Adam and Eve, the invasion of spiritual beings, and the division that we have because we're no longer one people. We can't even be one people in a church. Okay? For real, man. Because there are spirit, God is... Because if everybody comes together in unity, big things happen. And if they come in together in unity in a sinful state, terrible big things happen. Now, God decides to rescue us. And he does that by building a new family. And he starts with Abraham. I'm going really fast for you guys today, aren't I? He starts with Abraham. And Abraham is the beginning of God's rescue plan for humanity, which ultimately gives us Jesus, which ultimately rescues us. So I'm going to cut this short, and maybe we'll pick it up next week, but I want to take you to Acts 2. To end this up, I want to take you to Acts 2. But first, I'm going to quiz you. What happened at the Tower of Babel? Huh? They were divided. divided. And in what particular way were they divided? What mechanism of action did God use to divide the people? He changed their languages. Nobody spoke any of the languages anymore. They were not one language anymore. Jesus comes along. Jesus dies. He's resurrected, and then something called the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Now, Acts 2 is a very famous piece of Scripture, and if you come from a charismatic or a Pentecostal church, it's likely that you use this chapter to justify a practice called speaking in tongues. Now, I am not going to tell you that speaking in tongues does not exist today because I don't believe that. I've never spoken in tongues. I've seen people speaking in tongues. I have no reason to believe that that's not a spiritual event. I I have no reason to believe that tongues have ceased. There's nothing in the Bible that tells me that those have stopped. However, Acts 2 is not evidence of speaking in tongues at all. It's evidence of something else. I'm going to read it to you and I'm going to see if you can figure it out. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as fire appeared to to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, 
Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and said that they were filled with new wine. Were mocking, said they were drunk. uh, Some said they were filled with new wine. You notice that they weren't speaking in angelic languages. What languages were they speaking in? Earthly languages. And it really wasn't necessarily earthly languages that they were speaking in. It was earthly languages that they were hearing. So that they were able to hear all of the other people from all of the other nations and understand what they were saying about the mighty works of God. God was re-inheriting the people of the earth. He was bringing back all of the nations into one new nation. And that one new nation is called the kingdom of God. He was re-inheriting them. That's powerful stuff. That God, with with the sacrifice of Jesus, fixed the problem of Adam and Eve. He also fixed the problem of any kind of bloodline issue because you're given a new body, you're given a new spirit, you're given a new direction. And then the third thing he fixed was the division and the disinheritance of the nations. So all three of those things are fixed in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the pouring of the Holy Spirit into believers. So the worldview lens that I want you to look through is that there are spiritual beings all around us. Some of them are part of God's heavenly court, and some of them have been kicked out. You don't need to be talking to either group, period. The only person that you need to be talking to is Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity. But there there is a war raging around you, and you can find yourself a pawn in that war very quickly. And if you're going to be a pawn, it's better to be on God's side than the other side. The next thing that I want to say about that is that you're a child of God. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the court of God, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, which would have been the court of God on earth in that day. Boom, you're not in my court anymore. You're not even in my family anymore. Now you're back in the court and now you're back in the family. And if you're in the court, you've got duties. You are assigned duties. And it is your job to spread this word out to the nations so that they can be re-inherited. So that they can be rescued from where they are. That's your job. Now, I don't know what each of you has. Different people have different skill sets. Wendy's a wonderful manager. She does a great job. She's wonderful with the kids. Awesome. Love her. Damon wonderful pastor, will be in your life and hold your hand through everything, okay? Sean, you're a wonderful tile layer and you like lizards and animals, okay? Just don't be talking to any brassy looking ones, okay? (laughs) Stay away. But you have that ability, whatever it is, to take it and spread this gospel and help the re-inheritance of the nations. Now I have gone over today, so I'm going to go ahead and pray. Is there anything that needs to be said, Wendy? 
Okay. Lord, I want to thank you for the time that I get to spread uh, your word with these folks this morning. Lord, anything that I messed up this morning, I ask that you just push that into the ether. I ask that you help them to understand the gravity and the weight of the court position that they hold, Lord. And I ask that you give them the motivation, the energy, the 